Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. I'm Jordan Rothline, and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. Our guest this week is Claude Von Stroke, the man behind the American label Dirty Bird. They're celebrating their 10th anniversary this year, and Von Stroke, real name Barkley Crenshaw, has a whole lot to be happy about. He's had hits like Who's Afraid of Detroit, He's helped launch the careers of stars like Julio Bashmore and Eats Everything. And he's found a following both in Europe and the United States. In the latter, he's become a point of entry to the underground, a role he says he relishes. On a recent swing through Europe, he sat down with our staff writer Carlos Hawthorne to look back on a decade of Dirty Bird and much more. You can find our full archive of exchanges on residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at RA-Exchange. Claude Von Stroke, next up on The Exchange. Yeah, I just want to start by asking you about a couple of weekends ago, we had a couple of big parties, the opening of Ushuaia and Ibiza, and then We Are Festival in London. Yeah. And how did it go? Both of those parties were really cool. One of them I had, we had to do back to back, and then there was like a list of people, so I did it with Miss Kitten at the Ushuaia opening, and we had never played together before, but it was, it was good. Like she played some cool records and then she does like some singing and stuff. It was it was different for me, but I thought it was really fun and it went over well. And then We Are Festival was really good. Like I think that the tent that we were in was like by far the best area. It, it seemed like that was where it was going on. It was it was really Richie Ahmad played before me and then uh, I think it's Steve Lawler was after. It was cool. It was a good good tent. Jamie Everybody James. was really excited. Yeah. I didn't see Jamie, but he probably closed it, I'm yeah. assuming. I mean, did it start, did it feel like the start of summer for you? Yeah, kind of. I mean, we did, actually, I feel like the start of summer is always Detroit, the movement weekend. That was the weekend before. And we did kind of a different thing this year and there. We, we play every year, whether we either get booked there or we do our own party they kind of they don't book the same you have to it's kind of like on your off your thing unless you have two names like Richie Houghton figures out a way to play every year so this is where our off year so we did this huge party but we also set up a shop in the middle of downtown we just partnered with this guy who owns a coffee shop called Urban Bean and we literally had a like a dirty bird headquarters for four days it was so fun we got all this alcohol sent in, like we were serving drinks. I don't know if we were supposed to be doing any of that, but 
I was just hanging out there for days. It was really cool. So I felt like that was the start of the summer. Like we did a huge party. It was super fun. All our fans were there. We had the shop, like we were just hanging with everybody for days. We even had a little after party. It was kind of a, the kickoff. I always prepare a lot for Detroit as well. I feel like the Detroit weekend is like the weekend that I prep for to get into the summer. So it's like I kind of get a feeling of what I'm going to be into that summer. And then I just go from there. That's always like the starting point. How does the summer compare to the winter for you kind of more generally? Well, the summer is always in insane. So I plan usually on not finishing anything. That's basically what, how I do summer. I'm like, I'm not going to finish anything from June 30th to August 30th. Just write it off because I'm going to play like a thousand shows. <laughs> that's, how, that's how summer goes. That's the difference. In the winter, I try to finish tons of music. All right. But in the in where I live, the difference between winter and summer is like four degrees. It's like always warm. You're living in LA now? <laughs> yeah, I live in Venice, which is kind of, if you don't know where that is, it's like, uh, it's kind of like the Haight-Ashbury of LA, where I used to live in Haight and Lower Haight in, in San Francisco for a long time. And this is the closest that you can get, I think, to that vibe. But it's on the beach. And it's warmer. Nice. But there's just as many freaks and weirdos. <laughs> Which uh, is why I like it. Nice. So yeah, it's 10 years of Dirty Bird. I mean, how does it feel to have reached that milestone? It's really cool because I always think about the beginning when I think about now. It's just kind of like I take a moment and say, dude, we did like the whole thing. Like it happened. It, it actually, we did something. <laughs> like it's, it worked. It's cool. I, I like it to think of like how I was really scroungy and like raw in the beginning. And I feel like we're a little bit more polished now, but we're still pretty raw. <laughs> but it's a little more professional now. A little bit more, <laughs> but you know, I, I don't know. I don't, doesn't even answer the question. How would you describe the, the difference between the label now and say five years ago? Hmm. Well, five years ago specifically, I feel like we go in, in waves. So we kind of stay consistent and then the people go through waves of whether they like us or not. And it's by territory, too. It's it's really erratic. It's insane. So right now we're on like a huge U.S. wave and maybe on like a little bit of a Europe dip. But it, it just shifts like every two, three years. Like when year five, we were kind of in a slump, I felt like. And, we, and I've had to like really focus on it. But that's just the way the label goes. Like shooting up in the beginning then like slow dip then a shoot up then a dip then a thing like it's all about just like weathering the just staying with your thing it's staying with the belief that it'll just always keep coming back around if you if you keep doing good work how, how do you measure those peaks and troughs is it it's gigs? i'm just like i don't know i it's just a sense that i get I guess you can kind of see it in the gigs, but not really. I feel like I get booked 
enough anyway. either way. But <laughs> like, I think that I'm a sensitive person and I can feel it when it's really going well somewhere and when it's kind of like, okay, maybe we're not in like the coolest label right now somewhere. When you go through those kind of dips, are you searching for a hit record to bring you back out or something like that? No. That's one thing I never did. I'd never search for, I mean, I'm searching for a hit record, but it's not, it's almost never the record that I think is going to be the hit. The hit records just come out. I really just sign the records that I like, and then some of them just become hit records. I'm never, I never want to do a label where, for example, like a lot of major labels have come up to us over whatever, all 10 years, but I never do it because I never want to be in that position where we're like, we got to sign the next hit record. <laughs> I just want to yeah. release like the little guy and the big guy and the guy in the middle just because I like the record. And then I don't want to be having to have a huge selling record to stay in business because it's just not, it ruins everything. Sure. Let's take it back. I mean, your first contact with electronic music, was that via the radio? Yeah. I would say the first time I heard techno would have been on uh, probably like WDET or WGPR in Detroit by Electrifying Mojo would have played like some Juan Atkins stuff. And I thought it was just super weird. I wasn't into it at all. But at least I heard it. There was that track that was like Technica, Technica. Like, I don't know if you know. <laughs> it was so weird. That guy, the Electrifying Mojo, played like everything. It was amazing. Like Prince, Beastie Boys, Parliament, Techno. He would have played drum and bass if it was around. <laughs> like he would have played every. So I heard everything. And I don't think a lot of American kids heard techno when they were like 14 years old. So in that way, I was exposed to it, but I didn't like it. But I did try to get a job at Juan Atkins Studio without even realizing who he was. I rode my bike over there because they had the biggest ad in the yellow pages for Metroplex. And it was a recording studio. It was advertised as a recording studio. Yellow pages for every internet kid is a gigantic phone book. Yeah. <laughs> if if you're under 25 it. years old, you don't even know what the yellow pages is. It was a gigantic phone book where every company advertised and you would get it delivered to your house every year. And that's how you used to find stuff before the internet. <laughs> so I rode my bike over there and tried to get a job as a studio engineer, but I was like 16 years old. And they were like, basically, I played them this rap tape that I made and they liked it, but they were like, who, what, get out of here. <laughs> Have you since told Juan that story? I did tell him that, yeah. He thought it was funny and he pretended that he remembered me. And <laughs> he was he was nice about it. <laughs> I feel like a pivotal moment was the first time you heard drum and bass. Yeah. Was that also on the radio? No. Right. So I didn't get into techno when I first heard it. But I did get into drum and bass when I first heard it. So I just got given a mixtape by one of my friends, a guy named Mike Hayner. He's just like a guy from Detroit that I'm friends with. <laughs> He's a graphic designer. And uh, he just gave me this mixtape. 
And I was living in a loft above Nikki's Pizza in downtown Detroit, which is kind of like right in the center of downtown. And I had, it was like amazing. Like if just picture, I get this mixtape. I have a flat that's like $500 a month, but it's like huge in a like kind of abandoned factory looking joint. And I have the whole cityscape and I just put this on and I'm looking at the city and it's like Pansia, Ed Russian Optical. And I'd never heard any of that sound before, ever. And I was like, who are these people? What is this sound? This is like from outer space. And I was just like, this is insane. And I started doing drum and bass immediately after I heard that. So DJing, buying the records? No, I, I made a live rig, like with a headlight on my head, like Chemical <laughs> Brothers style, like our orbital or whatever. I had a huge mixing board and like a Nord modular oh my, wow. and a sampler and some delight, like pedals and an emu emulator four or whatever. And I like did a whole thing and I went and did it in raves in Detroit and no one liked drum and bass. I did it a couple times at these parties called poor boy that were like the cool warehouse parties at the time. And it would be like the main room would be like Mike Servito and all these and whoever, Godfather. And then my room would have like four people. But it would take me like three hours to set up. <laughs> it was totally depressing. <laughs> but but I mean, at least I got into music, right? I mean, it was cool in that way. So, I mean, drum and bass wasn't something that anyone was listening to. In was. Michigan? No. In like 1990-something? No way. Everyone in my building complained about my bass. I mean, my building was like DJ Bone. I think Derek Puzzleco. There's some people in my building that did house and stuff, and they hated me. But I became friends with them later. <laughs> so how long did that kind of... Uh, how long did the drum and bass... Okay, so I did that, and then I had a bunch of spurts in my career. So where I would just do music like a psychopath and then I would just say, fuck it, I can't make it. It's not going to happen. And then I would stop. And that's why I hadn't heard drum and bass because I did music and then I went and then I did like hip hop. Yeah. And then I went to college and everyone like branded me a novelty act like the white rapper. And I was like, this is not going to fly. I can't deal with this. I do not want to be like the quote white rapper, like novelty act at frat parties. <laughs> and it was really bugging me. So I just stopped doing music. And then that was why I didn't hear drum and bass because that was like right when drum and bass became big. I didn't listen to electronic music for like four years. Then I graduated and then I eventually heard it, but I, there was all these spurts of like, I do tons of music and then I stop and then I do tons of music. But at, when I did the drum and bass, I stopped because I literally had a hard drive crash and I lost everything that I had worked on for a year and a half. And it was so depressing that I just stopped making music again for another two years. It was so ridiculous. Don't stop. <laughs> so was the, was the mix by your friend? Yeah. Right. So he liked it. Yeah. Like <laughs> then I started going over to their their house and like it was super ridiculous. Like <laughs> smoke a joint, sit on the couch, like just guys listen to like Ed Russian optical wormholes, like on just sitting there. <laughs> like totally ridiculous. Like you could have that sounds 
crazy to me now, just like sitting and listening to music like that. But it was like at that time, the sound design and drum and bass has always been the they've always had the best sound design of any genre. But I think that's also kind of why it really dips ebbs and flows so hard as well because it's so based on sound design and not sometimes that cuts into like the song aspect in the period before you launched dirty bird you were working in film were you djing at the time or like making music in your bedroom kind of stuff? yeah so i started making music when i was i played the cello from like age nine to like for 14 years and then when I was 12, I saved up and bought a four-track recorder. A four-track recorder for all those people who are young is like a cassette tape where you can record on both sides of the cassette at the same time and you get four tracks. This is like, it's just amazing what you can do now. It's totally amazing. <laughs> like that would probably cost like 1500 bucks too. Just that stupid four-track recorder. And I made only rap music. And I would beatbox like in the bathtub and like overdub. And then like we made all these, like I was really young. I made hip hop tracks about like the pizza delivery place. Like Nero's Pizza was my local pizza. And we, my first track was called Nero's Pizza. <laughs> I can't believe I even remember that. So yeah, I was always into it. I was always into beats. And. After that, I saved up. I had like a lawn mowing job. Like I had made a little company and I saved up $2,000, which was like a lot of money then. Wow. <laughs> and I bought an Emu Emacs, which was a sampler with 11 seconds of mono sampling. But you could do a lot of stuff with 11 seconds with all the looping tricks and stuff. And you could make an entire song with that which is hard to even imagine now, 11 seconds of sampling total for your whole song. Just everyone realized that all songs before a certain time were made on these kind of gear, like the limitations, it doesn't matter, right? Like it's, you could still make good songs. Like it doesn't mean they're gonna be better songs just because you can sample like 45 hours now <laughs> on your laptop or on your iPad or your phone. But in the period just before you kind of started throwing the parties and launching the label, you were, I mean, were you kind of like, was there a scene? Were you in like a little name on the scene? No, so I decided to leave Detroit and move to San Francisco. And I actually lived in Oakland, which is across the bridge. And I was a video editor. I wasn't even like a video editor. I was like the assistant editor. And we edited men's warehouse commercials. So <laughs> if you you know what that is if you live in America, but if you don't, it's like the shop where you can get like three suits for $400 or whatever. <laughs> it's really, the commercials were terrible, but I was able to use the equipment in the shop. And so I had an idea to start filming all the DJs that would come to town this is just like, okay, I'm old. So this is like right when email is starting to become big. <laughs> and so I just started saying email is like really powerful. I can just start emailing all these DJs. So when they come to town, 
I'll just film them. And I was able to get a bunch of the Detroit guys first to do it. So immediately everyone wanted to do it because I'd be like, oh, you know, I have Derek May on this. And they'd be like, oh, well, we have to do it. And so for like a year, I was able to film every single prominent DJ that came into San Francisco. And then I would go down to Miami and try to get like six or seven all at once. And I was asking them questions about how did you become popular? Like, what did you have to do? How do you DJ? Like the actual technical questions about how they mix. And I was literally just going to graduate school for how to get into electronic music because I had done a ton of electronic music up to then, but I couldn't figure out how to crack the nut. So this was almost like I'm making this for me. I'm making a thing that I want to see because I don't know how to do it. Were you DJing at this point? Yeah. But I I even DJed in high school. I had a radio show in high school. Right. I had a radio show in college. And then, but it wasn't mixing. It was just like play a song, talk, play a song, talk. And then when I moved to San Francisco, I started like, I DJed drum and bass, but I switched to house for the worst reason Literally just because there were less than three girls at every drum and bass party. <laughs> and all of the girls were at the house parties, but we hated the house music that was popular. So me and Justin Martin and Christian Martin, who I just kind of all met via the video shop because they would, Christian Martin was working at a video company. And we kind of all agreed that if we could play a house music that was more like drum and bass vibe or hip hop vibe and get the girls to come, that was like the good compromise between really hard music and really like vocally house that was super popular in San Francisco at that time. San Francisco was like dominated by naked music. At that point, that was like the biggest label in America. So that was what happened. Like, I just didn't like it. And I mean, when you were sitting down with these DJs and conducting all these interviews, what were the what were the key lessons that you took from it? There was a lot of like, just good information about how to get going. But really, at the end of it, it was all just like, believe in yourself and work your ass off. Like, that was the theme that came out of it. Everyone said the same thing. Don't copy, just be like, do your own thing and believe it in 100% and work as hard as you possibly can and maybe you'll get lucky. <laughs> but I did learn a lot of things that, so a lot of people were starting record labels in San Francisco at that time and they're all kind of not getting over the hump, if you know what I mean. That was the one thing that that video helped me with. Like I, I learned kind of how much money I needed to save up and how to get past that thing that was kind of holding back the other American label start startup labels, which is basically only just make sure you have a European distributor and make sure that you have enough money to survive four vinyls before you get paid. <laughs> and that was it. That was like the only thing I needed to know. As long as I could front the money and not because everyone just thinks oh we're gonna put out a record and then we're gonna get paid for it but that's not how it worked 
you got paid way late every time. So if you could go six months, you could get over that thing that crushes people, which is the initial layout of money to start a real label. And Dobird had such a strong sound, but also had such a strong aesthetic and the barbecues and the whole bird thing. I mean, were you, were you conscious of presenting something that was more than just music? Well, the barbecues were really Christian's baby, like, and it was before the label. So, yeah, I mean, it did kind of all just package itself up into a pretty thing, but it wasn't really, it wasn't really planned, if that makes any sense. So we just started doing the barbecues because we, there was no parties that we wanted to go to and no one came to the barbecues except for the guy that is our grill chef now is was the grill chef at the first time. He just showed up and said, I'm the grill chef. <laughs> and he still is. It's I mean, 14 years later. Now we fly him to the barbecues and pay him to do it. Nice. It's crazy. I mean, the whole like fun spirit of the label, was that a reaction against what was happening in San Francisco? No, I think San Francisco's always been fun. That's never... It was more of a reaction to minimal techno than it was to San Francisco is really fun. So I would never say that it wasn't fun enough. But dance music, the ser what was considered serious dance music was not fun at all at that point. So the guy that I'm working with now, Green Velvet, like that is I was like, okay, here's a guy that said, I'm going to be cool. My songs are also going to be kind of ridiculous at the same time, but they're still going to be cool. And I was like, that is exactly, that's like the sweet spot for me because I want to be like a happy person, but I also want to be a serious music producer. So there's, there's always that line between the jokey, like we're a fully joke thing and we know how to make music that we're always trying to like play with. And the label hit the ground like at a real pace. I mean, with Whistler's song Deep Throat, Who's Afraid of Detroit? And yeah. Did you have those tracks like stored up, ready to go? It was actually gonna be all Justin Martin label. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, I was gonna be the manager and I was gonna just put out Justin's music because at that point in San Francisco, there was a really hot little like illegal party scene. And there was a guy named Carlos who had a thing called Deep House Project. And it looked like the, when you get a parking ticket in San Francisco, it's like department DMV or whatever. But, and his logo was exactly the same, but it was DHP. And Justin had done some bootleg vinyls and we were all kind of getting into this record shop which has changed names like five times. I don't even know. It was tweaking, I guess, at that point. And so Justin was like blowing up in the small local scene. And I had been doing music forever, but I was not, I was just like, I'm just going to manage Justin because I think that he can make it. You know what I mean? So the first two records were Justin Martin records. And then I just decided I was going to remix the records. And then all of a sudden I just made Deep Throat and then I'm like, well, that should just be the third record. <laughs> and then that record became a big record. So I didn't actually think I was going to be an artist on the label 
on the first record. It's kind of weird. Is Who's Afraid of Detroit the biggest record? Of our label? You know what's crazy? The Whistler was a way bigger record at the time, and that was the B-side. Right. But that was more of a fad record. So the other record is the one that lasted, but I, I think the Whistler sold more records. But yes, for like, do you remember? And can you like... Do you remember the old days kind of thing? Who's Afraid of Detroit is definitely the biggest record. I mean, you've had that's one of many hits you've had over the years. Is there one that you're particularly proud of that you still love playing? That one, I really do think it's like a good record, but <laughs> I am at the point where I, it's like I can play it every once in a while, but like every show is like can you play this record and i'm like no i'm not playing it <laughs> i know i don't want to be a <laughs> debbie downer about th that record but i'm not going to play it every show come on i mean it's like 10 year old record or something but i don't know there's certain records that i like that nobody liked that i thought were really cool records like i really like that track monster island and i don't know there's like lots of the most conceptual record ever was the record Vocal Chords. It was the most, it was like I had a, a really out there concept and I brought a barbershop quartet singer into the studio and went through every single vowel formant and every pitch. It was like a project, you know, like that record took like brainwaves for me. <laughs> So that was the technically the hardest record, even though it sounds like a super easy record to make. It's just like ding, ding, ding. It's just like a whatever. When you hear the at the end result, it seems like a very simple record, but it was technically the hardest record. So I like that record. I mean, you guys did blow up pretty quickly. I mean, how do you reflect back on that? Those initial that initial period. I think we were lucky, but we were also really different. I mean, I I will say that if there was a guy, Edgar Dirksen, at Neutone Distribution, who uh, Neutone was, like, in Frankfurt. It's it's out of business now. But they weren't, like, the biggest vinyl distributor, but they were the weird guys. Like, they had Playhouse and the weirder side. You know, like, they had the, the stuff that I liked that we I would buy. And if Edgar Dirksen doesn't pick up our label... I don't know if we would have had a label. Like, they just said, okay, these are super weird records and we like them. And we're just going to, we're going to do it. And that was huge because nobody else said yes in the beginning. And None of the American distributors said yes. None of the other, nobody from England, nobody else, like, they were the one, they were like, okay. The first record that we released was like a guy with a southern accent rapping and a bunch of fart noises over a house beat. It was really weird record. And cows mooing, like it was a strange house record. So so they were sending that record out across Europe? Yeah. Well, that was the, one of the things I learned from making the, the film is at that time, like 2004, 2005, don't spend any resources in America. 
just put everything you can into Europe because Europe is the market. So I was like, I don't, I say that the American distributors didn't take it, but I don't even know if I asked them because I only wanted a European distributor. So we actually looked like we were coming from Europe, which really helped it because we didn't look like we were coming from San Francisco. We were getting re-exported back from Germany into America. So I don't know for de like the buyers, it just looked more interesting, I think, because we were a weird San Francisco label, but we were coming from Frankfurt. You mentioned earlier that you're enjoying a particular purple patch in America at the moment. I mean, what was the was there a specific moment when you realized that yes, this is working in the U.S.? You mean recently? Because it was kind of always working. This is something that happened. Do you want me to give you a long answer again? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm like. But I mean, you're saying that, so when it went, it got big in Europe and then it, it did travel over to America. Right. So when it trickles back, it takes longer, but it goes really big when yeah. it finally catches. I have this thing. So we're going to get into a little bit of weird politics here. When George Bush was the president of the United States, like Richie Houghton moved to Berlin and then like, a lot of people started moving out of America who were like key people in house music and stuff. It's not Richie Hodden's fault or anything. I'm just saying like that, that, that was like the one that I noticed where I was like, oh, he's leaving. Basically, the infrastructure of house music in America kind of disappeared. So then like three or four years ago, we have this gigantic EDM boom but all the people have left and so it's like dirty bird ovum planet e there's no one ghostly there's like nothing left so we just get like a gigantic present handed to us because we're the only house djs left it's crazy how it happened so we actually were the only ones that were ready for it so we just said, thank you, we will take this. <laughs> and that's what happened. I was going to ask you because you, yeah, Dirty Bird and yourself, you do play a lot of these really big festivals in the US and you kind of, yeah. you've got that role as repping for the underground. I mean, how, yeah. do you, how do you feel about that? I like that role. I think that the whole point, I've been really conscious of trying to always be right in the middle of like we never want to go really commercial and we never want to be like i'm not dancing because i'm so cool like we're always trying to be like in the middle area there like a gray area where you don't really know if it's underground or not but we just want to have fun but i feel like that's the place that we fit and that's a really hard place to fit, like, because people always change their perceptions and then they're like, no, you're, you suck. Or, oh, that record was too deep or whatever. I mean, this whole notion of the, the kind of EDM trickle down that people are going to see the hard worlds today, but then tomorrow they might right. be getting into Claude Von Stroke. Is that something that you're witnessing when you're yeah, there? Yeah, absolutely. That is a, that's what's happening. It's already happened. It's like I talked to cashmere on the phone just because we're doing this uh 
back-to-back project called Get Real, and we are just like, what is going on? This is so awesome. <laughs> <laughs> like, because that's, that's exactly what's happened. Like, kids are like, oh, we used to like this, but now we like Deep House or whatever. Like, I don't even know if they know what, what they're listening to, but they know we're like the gateway drug into the really deep grasshopper on aluminum <laughs> like pots and pans clinging and pans, clacking yeah. house <laughs> okay so you're like the second tier we're like right we're we're how you get into that you you listen to us and then you're like oh yeah i used to listen to them but now i only listen to like birds chirping in berlin i feel like you're beat. quite open-minded when it comes to the whole kind of commercial dance thing i know you've you've, you've played with skrillex and yeah you've, I mean, Edge and Dance. Skrillex is a cool guy. I don't get super hung up about it. I mean, I would, there are things that I wouldn't do just because I feel like it wouldn't really represent me. But here's the thing I don't see any problem with if I'm playing exactly the same music, does it really matter if I'm playing? before Skrillex or if I'm playing before Damien Lazarus what's the difference if I'm playing the same set it's like yeah so one of them is a different audience and but it's I'm playing the same music so it's like okay it could be perceived in a way but I haven't changed what I'm doing so I think it's a plus always to just wherever I can get it I'm like the guy that wants to try it out so that's what I tell my booking agent. I'm like, I want you to put me on the main stage and have me eat shit <laughs> instead of headlining the deep house stage because I want to show people the sound that, you know what I mean? Like, I'd rather go on after a huge trap set and just like fail <laughs> because somebody will like it yeah. and it'll be 10,000 more people than the other stage. It's interesting because I've I've read that back when you were starting, you kind of regretted making those m- a couple of more kind of commercial things like remixing certain tracks or playing certain parties. Maybe now you're kind of you're in a position where you can yeah take those risks and be more. Well, open. I think that the remixes that I was talking about were bad remixes that I shouldn't have done. Does that make sense? Like now, I feel more comfortable in what I'm going to deliver. And maybe, like, there was a year where I did 28 remixes, and that's not advisable. (laughs) Because some of them were cool, and some of them were, like, really, I didn't think they were the best remix that I could have done. Like, I remixed, like, a big tune that was already commercial, and then I fucked it up even more. (laughs) That's what I was thinking. And they'll never let you forget it. It'll come out again in like two years. You know, I'm not going to talk about which tracks, but once you do, this is the good advice for up and coming producers. Whatever the worst song that you're going to make, whatever the worst song you make is, is the one that someone is going to license for the next 25 years. And you're going to have to look at it on the front page of Beatport for the rest of your life. (laughs) So beware. I mean, because you're talking about that gray area between the underground and the commercial. And I imagine like when you're coming up, when you first exploded, negotiating that must have been hard. Like you're getting all these offers. You want to do these things. You... It was actually not that hard because I really had a good sense of 
what the underground was from going to like raves in Detroit and like abandoned warehouses that I don't think that other people really know about when they start. So I kind of knew what it actually meant to be really underground and I knew kind of what it meant because I worked on a lot of movies. So I knew what it meant to be like the guy in the studio where the the you work on a song for four days and the director comes in and he's like, dude, I just want all these sounds changed into banjos. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd seen that side as well. <laughs> and so I'd seen like super like big budget movie music producing and abandoned car factory raves. And that was like my experience was on both sides because I worked in film for a long time. And so I was aware of what it meant to be on both sides. And I think that that is why I did what I like why Dirty Bird is the way it is, is because. I never, ever want to be the guy that has to put the banjos in after working on the track for four days. Like, that is never going to happen. I'm never going to be, like, the producer for Katy Perry or something. <laughs> for a while, you were running Mothership alongside Dirty Bird, which is an outlet for more kind of European house and techno. Has that stopped? Is it on hiatus? That's a good question. Because I just had two conversations this morning about it. And what happened was I had, like, right when the records came out, I had two children. And I went to Europe every other weekend. Yeah. And it was, like, a real... I'm not going to say it was a grind because it was amazing. But it was not the easiest to travel with small children at home and, like, everything. And my wife, just like, what? This is what I got into? Like, you weren't even doing this when we met and so there came a point when I was running Dirty Bird and Mothership where I just had to say they're both gonna be average if I continue this is like year five when I was saying that we were kind of like what are we doing they're both gonna end up being average but if I drop one one of them could be like make make something like a statement in the universe. So that's why we stopped releasing Mothership Records. But I loved that label because it gave me an outlet to do the more deep like stuff that I like to play, but is not going to come out on Dirty Bird. But I think it's going to come back. It was only, what has it been, two years since at Mothership? I think we could still bring it back. Nice. I think it's coming back. Dirty Bird has famously had a hand in launching careers or helping hand in launching the careers of Julio Bashmore, Cats and Dogs Eats Everything, Tim Green. That must be something that you're pretty proud of. Yeah. I just had breakfast with Stefano Rivastar. When he came to me, he was going to be called Ghetto Junk. <laughs> and I convinced him to be called something else. <laughs> we did his first record too, I think. That's one thing that's really satisfying, but most guys that get really big, like they leave us. But in a way... I think that I have an ear for some, at least a little bit of an ear. Like I can find, there's always tons of new people. And I think that we are really good Dirty Bird advertisement right here. We are like a really great place to do your first two records. But in a way, like once you get big, it's almost 
people kind of tend to go off and do their own thing, but it's almost a good thing for us because I actually like, I don't want to ever have to be like, we have to release this record because this guy is big and he's associated with us. I always just want to release the best records. So I like that we just kind of like keep cycling it through. So yeah, you see the label now more as a kind of place to nurture and break talent yeah. rather than just... That's the best quality of this label. Like, it's the best place to have your, to like start your career. I mean, it's more of a risk, but it's more fresh. It's not even that risky. It's like, if the songs are really good, then it's not that risky, I don't think. You know, I listen to every demo. Right. And I listen to as many promos as I can, but that's almost impossible. <laughs> but, I still listen to every demo, maybe not for more than 10 seconds, but I listen to them all. And it's not that hard for me to find like every, sometimes I get super depressed going through the demos because I'm like, oh my God, everyone's yeah. trying to be on Dirty Burn and it sucks. Yeah. But sometimes there's just like, oh my God, this guy, it's so good. And then I'm, it's great when that ha I love when this happens. How many demos do you get a week, do you think? Um, 500? Wow. Something like I don't know. That's serious. <laughs> it's a lot. It's intimidating when I go to the demo folder and I haven't looked at it in a month. Let's just put it that way. All my days. I'm just like, oh, my God. But that piece of that nugget of gold might be in there. It usually is. It's gotten to the point where I can count on we've set up such a network so that either Justin Martin or Cats and Dogs or somebody is going to turn in an amazing record or Justin J or somebody new or there's going to be an amazing demo. And it's it's crazy because that's it. Like I'm relying completely on just getting lucky forever. <laughs> like because if it's not in the demo folder and it doesn't come from someone, we don't do a record. But somehow it just keeps coming in. They, they keep actually just coming in right at the right time. And we're like, oh, that's great. We'll do it. Nice. I mean, do you envision another 10 years with Dirty Bird? I think so, yeah. I don't know about another 20 years, but I think maybe 10, 10 is reasonable. I'm going to be old. <laughs> But yeah, I don't see why we would stop it unless it just tanks, <laughs> which you never know. It's like, it's not unheard of. Sure. I wanted to ask you about Ibiza. Yeah. You run a party there in 2013 yeah. at Sankey's. How did that come about? I don't know how the initial conversation came, but it just like materialized and then I tried to make it happen. And it was kind of a stretch to make it happen for me to try to bring that many Americans over week by week. Like, I think that, I don't know, it's hard to explain. So if you, let's say if you live in Berlin and you do a party in Ibiza, it's like whatever, th three hours. But I flew, we did like 18 weeks and I went home Yeah. in the middle <laughs> yes, yeah, it of. was kind of hard. It, I will not say that was easy party. It was difficult. Hence why we don't have <laughs> it didn't continue. I couldn't do it. 
that's basically it just came down to like i can't do it it was too hard i don't live here (laughs) (laughs) ibiza in general has been been a big place for you you play there a lot in the summer and you play many different parties i kind of see you as yeah bringing that kind of fun alternative to what is quite kind of yeah narrow-minded i mean very groove centric and my history there has been kind of interesting i really aligned myself with we love the party on sundays at space because i pretty much became friends with mark and sarah broadbent and they were like my contacts like that was i only played for them it was limiting also but like i really liked that i was like one of their guys you know but then they left that party and i just said you know what it's time for me to like they left they were my homies and so i'm just gonna see if i can do something like because i'd only played that party and i was always like well what i can't play anything else because of it's just like the ibiza is crazy politics you yeah just kind of choose your lane and then you are in that lane so then i played enter the year after that which kind of different audience which was really cool and then i got on paradise and like different things started to happen and now I'm just kind of bouncing around which is also really fun because I get to play in front of a lot of different crowds and some years I go a million times and some like this year I'm going like four times it's just like what's it's kind of like what's happening in America how many it's dependent on how many times I'm going to show up in Ibiza we love us at Sankey's now yeah I can't say that party did a lot for me so yeah I Good luck. God bless that party. <laughs> I hope it's successful. Let's talk about your music. You've you put out three albums now. Yeah. And I read that you said you don't want to do any more. I don't want to do any more. <laughs> Why not? Because I don't think it's that kind of world anymore. So an album for me, some people are able to just like do an album in three months. But for me, it's like minimum 10 months to do an album. People like me and Justin Martin were like painstakingly going through the tracks. It takes me a long time to feel good about a track. And I just feel like putting almost a year into something that's going to disappear in three weeks or less is no longer a good formula. You can probably see that I've just shifted to just like we're gonna I'm gonna release something interesting like every three months forever. That that's it's also making me happier because I don't wanna do the tortured artist thing, but when you're doing an album, it's fucking miserable. <laughs> because there's always a date where it has to be in and you're just like once you get the pressure thing, it's counterproductive. So if you just say, I'm doing singles, all of a sudden your life is like a thousand times better. <laughs> but I, I might do something else. I'm going to start something under Barkley Crenshaw, my real name, nice. in October. But we'll talk about that at other time. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to ask you what your plans were for the future musically. Yeah, I did some... I did a couple tracks with Eprom, uh-huh. and I've done some kind of like 90s inspired hip-hop beats but with like more modern production value and i honestly 
don't want to like talk too much about it because I'm literally just doing it for fun. I om- I'm doing it because I want to do it and that's it. Like I was like scheming and thinking of like all these ways to do it. And then I'm like, I'm just going to use my real name and I'm going to do it for fun and just see what happens. And that's what's the next thing. But I'm still going to do house, of course, Claude Von Stroke. What is this thing you're doing with uh, Green Velvet? Okay, so the Green Velvet thing is called Get Real. And it's basically a back-to-back where we just play a track a piece and it's really fun. Like we have like ESP, like it's really good. It was good. It just happened accidentally in Miami a couple of years ago. And then we were like, man, that was good. And so it's really just for festivals, but it's got a lot of like, it just came out of the gate really easily. And like, we didn't even say anything. It was already getting booked. Like, so, I think it's going to work. So you're doing that this summer a lot? Yeah. Mostly in America, in Canada. I'm sure it will come over here. It just takes, I don't know if it's like blipped on the radar yet. We're just rolling it out like mm-hmm. with no pressure. You know what I mean? Just see what happens. <laughs>